Welcome to episode 8 of 514 Beltway to Bytown podcast. My name is Jeff and with me is my longtime friend Todd. This podcast is recorded remotely with me being in D.C. and Todd in Canada's capital city of Ottawa. Remember, everything we say could be fact or fiction. With us today is Troy McAllister, a great friend of mine who has an incredible story. We'll talk about his journey from growing up in Kingston, Ontario, to winning two state championships in Chicago, in addition to being named the Gatorade High School Coach of the Year. Welcome to the podcast, Troy. Thanks, Jeff and Todd. I appreciate you guys having me on. Our pleasure. All right, Troy, let's start at the beginning. You were a player at Queen's University. Tell us about that experience, why you chose Queen's, and what it was like playing under the great Pat Sheehan. Yeah, I think choosing Queens, uh, it, was, it was an easy decision. One, uh, being from Kingston, uh, something I always wanted to do. Uh, my, my grandmother had a, had a fond place in her heart for Queens, and, and uh, that pushed me a little bit to want to go there. Um, and, and then obviously with the academic um, prestige that Queens has, it was an easy decision with that part. And then the, the football program, uh, you know, to play in the tricolor, wear the yellow, uh, it was a special time. Uh, and as for, for playing for Pat, I was very blessed and, and I got to play for, for Bob Howes and Pat Shan. Yeah. Um, you know, two very different men, but, but equally as um, greatest coaches. And, and I think when you look at Pat, uh, his knowledge of the game is, is second to none. Uh, and he has a unique way of, of motivating you to get the most. Um, and that's a big deal as a coach is, is, working with different individuals to, to, and getting the most out of them. Yeah, I agree. And, and you and I will get back to Pat. You know, obviously we were on the same staff there. But once you finished playing, you decided to join the Queen staff as a coach. What prompted that move and, and how did the whole thing happen? Yeah, I think it, I was an average player at best. So I, I learned quickly that I, I needed to – I love football and I needed something else to do with the game. So obviously coaching is the, the, the way to go. Um, and being a, a recent graduate, I, I approached Pat and said, hey, I want to coach. And I, I wasn't I didn't have any job opportunities at the time. Uh, and he was all for it. Uh, and, and he was very flexible uh, with my with my work schedule uh, and everything. And, and it was a great way for me to. To further my knowledge of the game, uh, stay involved with sports um, and, and coach at a very high level. I got a question, Troy. What type of athlete, for people who aren't familiar with Queens, what type of athlete would you get at Queens? Because I think from an outsider looking at it, it seems almost like a double-edged sword. On one hand, you have very smart kids, because it is almost like the equivalent of an Ivy League school in Canada, um, who are probably very coachable. But it's also a smaller pool of athletic talent to draw from, like on the recruiting standpoint. Yeah, I think when you, when you look at even just the history of Queens football, um, it was dominant uh, for years and years and years but there wasn't as that many programs uh, and university was such a prestigious thing to go to because not everyone did it. But as educational opportunities kind of came about for everyone, Queens wanting to maintain their academic standard, uh, you, you have to really, they have to filter through who they can bring in. Uh, and as that occurred, I think where, where Pat changed the game for Queens was the recruiting base. Uh, he went nationwide um, I mean, I remember going to Regina, going out to the West Coast, doing recruiting trips, mm -hmm. and and you were scouring, looking for great, talented athletes with high academics. And Pat really, really pushed the envelope to to how much you could, how many guys were out there. It wasn't just oh, we can't recruit. It's Queens. He was he wouldn't accept that, and that was a big deal. 
And it's why, you know, he was able to, to have such sustained success at Queens because he would recruit and go find all of the best student athletes he could possibly find. No rock unturned, a visionary. Pretty cool. Right. You know, Troy, you've gone on to obviously doing amazing things, but what kind of influence did the coaches at Queens in particular, Pat, have on your coaching career? I, I think if you just look back to the, the staff when, when you and I started, Jeff, um, you had Burke Breen, who actually was my high school coach, um, yeah. who was legendary in the Kingston area. You had Gordy McClellan, another legend in the Kingston area. Mm-hmm. Um, all Pat McMiniman, all these great men uh, and great Pat football. Pat, I, I'm just looking at yeah. the, the assistants right now, the right. not the lead ones. Um, and Ron Augustine, guys that were, mm. I mean, as much as I, 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 they are great football minds, they're even better men. Uh, and I think I that was a big piece of, of what Pat wanted. Um, obviously, uh, at the time in the, the Canadian university coaching ranks, it was difficult to, to have assistants that made a lot of money. And for Pat to go get the high school, the, the level of high school coaches that he got with the commitment to the game for minimal money, um, it was unbelievable. And then obviously when you look at kind of the, the coordinators and the, the, the paid assistants, so to speak, you had Pat Tracy and Warren Goldie. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and Canadian college football, Warren Goldie's a legend. Um, and, and Pat Tracy, I think from a defensive standpoint, there's nobody better in, in the country. And, and you could argue uh, across North America, he's a very talented defensive coordinator. I agree. Mm-hmm. And, and what lessons do you take, you know, maybe X's and O's and maybe not X's and O's that you still use to this day? I think for the biggest thing I've taken from, from my experience um, coaching at Queens was the ability like having good men as coaches is a big deal. I think the X's and O's can be taught. Um, I think techniques can be learned by coaches to, to adapt, but I think having a good man, a good mentor, that's something that's difficult to, to teach. Um, so having great men like Pat did, it was easy for him to teach the game and they were football people. They wanted to learn, uh, but the good mentor part was a huge deal. And when you look at our staff at Phillips now, I mean, that's a, big part of what we have on our staff right and and you know to this day I, you know i thank pat for the opportunity to be on that staff without him I, I never would have made it down here in the u.s and he's had an incredible influence on my coaching career so you know from queens you and i decided to go to grad school pursue our master's in education in buffalo but how did you end up in chicago uh, this is a, a great story um jeff you were pushing me to, to get a job um, rightfully so. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was, it was really hard finding work back home. Uh, mm-hmm. and with our degree, we had the ability to work in the U S and, um, you, you pushed it. You said, Hey, the Chicago's having a job fair. Let's go down. Worst case, we have a, yeah. a trip to Chicago out of it. So right. we, we go down to Chicago, go to the United center, um, which is where the bulls and the, the Hawks play and go in. And I think at that point you had already gotten a job. Um, so you weren't that worried about it, but Hey, we were on a trip to, to Chicago and, uh, I ended up getting hired on the spot, uh, to teach kindergarten and right. with nothing else on my plate. Uh, you know, I decided to, to take a risk and said, forget it. I'm going to go to Chicago on my own and, and start a career and, and see where it goes. Um, so and, follow- and that's essentially how it started. So a follow-up question to that, and it's for both of you, actually, because both you and Jeff, um, you had a passion for football. You both had a passion for working with young people, and you both ended up in the States. 
Do you feel in Canada, um, like coaching football is almost like a vocation? Like where the positions that are available are not necessarily commensurate with the skills and ability of the coaches that we have. There's, like, there's not enough positions for talented young coaches to kind of spread their wings and, and people are going to naturally look to other, whether down south or other, like other jurisdictions to kind of coach. Yeah, I can't speak like across the country of Canada, but I can speak from my high school experience in Kingston. Um, you can't compare the, the U.S. Friday night lights to what occurs in Canada. And I'm speaking from my experience with Kingston High School football. Um, it's, it's such a huge deal. And it's not to say it's not in, in Canada and not taken serious. Far from it. I, I, I listen to your podcast on, on Quebec football and it's, it's, it's growth. Um, and it's just it's such, it's such a higher – it means so much more, I feel, in the whole, the whole total community. Um, and it's similar to what hockey would be. Uh, in, in most Canadian towns. Uh, and, and that, you know, makes a big difference when you're trying to coach. I think coaching level, we're all very similar uh, in terms of X's and O's and, and teaching technique, whatever country you're in. Uh, I, I just think that there's, it means more in, in many spots of the U.S. versus Canada. And that's going off my experience. I, I'm definitely generalizing there, but that's just my experience with it. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, obviously I started coaching in Quebec and I, you know, I did the youth football. I did CJF. I ended up uh, at Queens. But there does seem to be a, a ceiling, is, you know, that, that doesn't seem to exist in the U.S. There's just so many more opportunities. And you can, you know, you can go up as a position coach, as a coordinator in so many different levels. And uh, it is a, a land of opportunity, even in the coaching world. There's no doubt about it. So, Troy, you know, you ended up taking a kindergarten job. How did Phillips come into play here? Uh, so I, I was coaching flag football uh, at the elementary school. I ended up getting a, a – spent a couple years just trying to find a, a coaching job. Uh, I don't think my, my Canadian college football experience wasn't respected. Uh, and right. I ended up getting a youth coaching job with a fifth and sixth grade team uh, as an actual – as a defensive coordinator. Um, so the fifth, we ended up winning the, the city championship in Chicago. It was really cool. Uh, and from that, I was given a freshman head coaching job at Dunbar high school, which is just down the street, street mm. from Phillips, uh, under legendary coach Glenn Johnson. And I coached there for a year and essentially the, the Phillips job arose, uh, the school was turned around. So it, it was the second in terms of data, the second worst school in the state of Illinois, so what happened was the Academy for Urban School Leadership took over the school and became, it became a turnaround school. What happens is every employee in the building is, is terminated or let go um, from lunchroom to custodial to administration to teachers to um, security. Everyone is let go and a new principal is brought in and he gets to handpick his own staff with the majority of the teachers, at least 50% coming from the AUSL teacher residency program. Well... I think there was maybe two people that interviewed or, or went in for the job um, <laughs> because it just, it's something that, that people didn't want. Uh, and the principal at the time, Terrence Little, had a very open mind. And I think in Chicago public school football, there's a lot of what we call retreads. So it's like the same coaches mm -hmm. that just go from program to program and the same thing happens and the same results and nothing changes, but they keep getting opportunities. He refused to hire a retread. Um, one of my 
I ended up having going kindergarten for three years and teaching a fourth grade and the assistant principal at that school ended up getting an assistant principal job at Phillips, Devon Horton. So having that connection, he kind of got my foot in the door with the principal to get interviewed and have a chance and, and, you know, vouch for me and push for me. And I was ended up being hired at Phillips. Um, and, and from there, we just kind of, we've been building since, um, and just had the success we've had. So you mentioned that, sorry, sorry, Jeff. You mentioned a bit of the challenges of being like an outsider and kind of, you know, integrating yourself into the community, but how much on a personal level was it a change? Like, I think, you know, growing up in Eastern Ontario, Kingston's maybe got 130,000 people, sleepy Canadian college town, a busy night on Princess Street is like maybe an RMC or Queen student passes out in in an alley or pisses off a balcony, right? Like how much of a shock to the system was it going to inner city Chicago, like right away and immersing yourself like in, uh, in the community and the culture? Yeah, I think the the one thing that I, I was able to do was immerse myself. Um, and looking back, uh, that's one of the, the best things I did was just force myself to do this. Um, I had no friends, no family here, just said, hey, I'm going to do it. I, I'd, I'd been somewhat sheltered my whole life being in Kingston and then going to Queens. Um, it, it was just something for me as a person, as a man that I, I needed to do. And in doing so, I was able to, to challenge myself and, and open my eyes and, and myself to the world. Uh, and, and Chicago was the place that I did it in and, and it ended up being an, an awesome decision and a great experience. It was a good fit. Yeah. So, you know, I saw the facilities, Troy, when you first took over. But for those that didn't, the first day you walk into Phillips, you see the facilities, you meet the team. Describe what that was like. I think seeing the facilities, it's it's shocking. Um the, the easiest way to say is there's there's cages on all the stairwells um and you, you start looking and, and it really it, it did feel like a prison um and, and that was the biggest thing it was like this just feels like a prison and that's the first thing when when mr terrence little came in as principal he got those cages down the fences he just took them down and people were like oh you shouldn't do that and you're like why and then the, the rumors go and the stories are that they used to drop kids off the stairwells that's why the cages came up whether it's true or not, you know, who knows, but it makes for a good, a good story. Um, but yeah, it just, it just had, it didn't feel, it, it felt like an institution um, and, and not in a good way. And, and I think that's something we tried to change and football wise. I mean, our first practice, there was 12 players. We were at a, uh, an open park that we kind of had to clean every day. And by clean, it wasn't just garbage. Uh, we were picking up uh, it, it, it it wasn't one of those things where you, when you're drawing up the map of your life, you're like, this is what I'm going to do and how I'm going to do it. Uh, but it was the experience that we had and, and we just moved forward from that point. How much like did you have to upsell the, like you said, you, there was a small turnout when you first, you first practice that you had there. How much did you have to upsell football as a sport to kids? Cause I think in Chicago, we always think basketball, right? Yeah, definitely. It's, it's a basketball town. Um, you know, I, I'm one of those people that says Michael Jordan ruined uh, the city of Chicago for football. Uh, <laughs> but I, I think in the, the youth, that's where, you know, basketball is really hard. hit. I think when you look at Chicago as a whole, it's a great sports town and the bears fans are phenomenal. Um, and same with the, you know, the Sox fans and Cubs fans to an extent. Um, but I think when you look at trying to get high school kids to young men to, to play football, in a basketball town, that's, that's tough. Uh, and one of the things we did was just keep at it, um, trying to find 
you know, young men that, that wanted to be a part of something, you know, maybe they weren't necessarily the best athletes in the school, but they wanted to be a part of something. And, and now, you know, with our program kind of just over 100 players, um, it still doesn't compare to basketball because when they have basketball tryouts, I mean, the gym is packed. There'll be a hundred to 200 boys for, for basketball tryouts, even though we, I would consider Phillips more of a football school. Uh, it's just the city of Chicago, like you said, and basketball has a hard, a hard sell in the city. And, and we're just fighting against that in a way, but we've embraced it. Uh, and, and, you know, we have multiple, we have a lot of multiple multi-sport athletes who play basketball and football and with the success we've had, some of those you might deem they might have said they were a basketball player early on. They're now Division One football players. Wow. But you, so you said you have 100 kids in the program. There's about 600 kids in the school? Yeah. So that's one in six kids are, have some involvement in the program in some capacity. And I mean, and you, you cut it in half because you're probably saying it's 300 boys. So approximately one in three of, of the boys. That's impressive, Troy. Yeah. Troy, after the early years, when did you know this program was turning the corner? Year three was the, the first time I had an inkling like, hey, we could be pretty good. Um, year one was an absolute nightmare. Uh, I, I'm, if, you know, if there's any aspiring coaches out there or, or just beginning their head coaching career, I would say early on, really, really focus on the culture of the program. I think if you get the culture right, great things can happen. Um, at some point, your X's and O's do have to be right. Um, but getting the culture right is a big deal. In the first year, I really spent getting the culture right as best as I could and, and trying to figure out, like, who are guys that, that we could count on? Who are guys that could be a part of a core? And in doing so, we were able to, to establish something. Year two, we were in a lower conference in Chicago. We ended up winning our conference in year two. And it was a senior-heavy team. And going into year three, we had the op option to bump up to the highest level conference. And I remember our, our athletic director at the time didn't want to because he felt we were senior heavy. He thought we just, the, the, a lot of times in Chicago, those teams that move up bump right back down because they're senior heavy. They make the jump, but now they're young and they get their butt whooped in the top conference. But I actually felt stronger about our team coming back because our young players were really, really talented. Uh, and, and I felt like, hey, the seniors got us here, but I actually think the young guys are more talented. So that was the year when we go to year three and we're in the top conference. I think we we're five and four, but we played with almost exclusively sophomores, um, sophomores and juniors. So you knew, hey, this is the, the, the team that's going to be. And that group two years later, I mean, we lost in a state championship game, but that was the group that got us there. What's what's harder, Troy, turning a bad team to good or going from a good team to great? Um, I, I actually going from good to great is by far the hardest thing. Yeah, uh, I, I think going from a bad team to good, I think X's and O's can really take you to a lot of places in football and good places. And I think if you get the mm -hmm. scheme right, you can beat bad teams. Um, so you can get to be good, but going from good to great. There's so much that, that happens because as you play better teams and as we play teams from downstate, I mean, obviously technology becomes a significant factor. Um, Sideline replay, making adjustments, doing those things. Um, yeah. Going from bad to good, you don't have to make adjustments. If your scheme's right going into the game, you're fine. But good to great, it, you have to be able to adapt uh, on the fly in a game. And something you might have prepped for all week long is, is different. And 
you're the young man, you know, especially offensively, uh, you know, the offensive line, like you might have prepped this front and this look and how they do it. And all of a sudden it's a new look and you've got to be able to adjust like that uh, without losing too much, too many possessions of, of wasting time. Is uh, Troy right now, like my understanding of the Illinois public like sports system, private schools and public schools historically didn't play one another. Is that in the process of changing right now in Illinois? No, we do. We're, we're all okay. combined. Um, the, the private schools have a, so if you're a non-boundary school, you get a multiplier against you, um, which essentially A day is the highest class in, in Illinois. One uh, A is the smallest. So if you were a four A enrollment wise, and you were a private school, you'd have a multiplier. So you'd end up in five or six A based on your multiplier. Okay. And right now, the program at Phillips, you guys are going into seven A. Yeah, we're in seven A right now. Uh, we are a neighborhood school uh, with a four A enrollment. Uh, but we've elected to play up at the higher level. Nice. Troy, I'm going to tell you, when you first won, I mean, I was so proud of you, you know, as a friend, as a fellow coach. But describe what the first championship meant to you, the school, and actually the city of Chicago. Yeah, so um, quick or brief history of that. We're the first Chicago public school football team to ever win a state championship in Illinois. So when we won in 2015, it was kind of like, anyone that had played Chicago public league football was a part of that. They felt the moral victory is that. Um, and so for us, it was obviously there's relief. Um, <laughs> I think when you finish the, the season and, and our season, if we go all the way, it's 14 games. It's a long process. Yeah. And in Illinois, we have summer ball. Um, essentially it's just 25 contact days in June and July um, where, you know, you're doing seven on seven, you can be in helmets and shoulder pads. You can't ever be in full gear, but you have 25 practices. So our literal summer's gone. Then August, we come back in for camp. So you've been at it for so long. And it was just relief, um, relief that it was over, um, relief that, you know, we'd accomplish our goal. And then after that, the, the elation starts, you know, and it, it was just, just to see the young men, like it was such uncharted territory like some of them didn't know what to do um and yeah. i think even myself it was like what am i supposed to do do i jump do i dance do i sing <laughs> and uh in the end the there's a really cool picture we have in the school posted up in our trophy case um and these the boys are making the best faces you've ever seen and it looks like you know just huge elation and joy but in reality they broke the trophy when it was handed to them so it's all their faces of like shock like oh shoot we broke the trophies um and, and that was the moment for me when that happened where it was kind of like relieving the pressure it was like all right i can i can let loose i can relax now um yeah and it it was just a a unique feeling one obviously to win a state championship it's a huge accomplishment in its own but to be like to see those young men and understand that they're history makers in the city of Chicago, that's a huge accomplishment. Uh, and I look back now and that's all I think about that, that team from 15 was history makers. Beyond success on the field, Troy, Phillips also has a growing reputation for success academically in the classroom. You speak a little bit about the, some of the academic success your kids have had and kind of where the program's headed that way. 
Yeah, so I think when you just look at, at what's occurring in our school, I think the, the football team in, in particular, they're the leaders within our building. And and a lot of them, are, you know, are striving to achieve a new greatness. And I think people think that a scholarship athlete sometimes like, oh, they're not a smart student, but there is a standard they have to meet. Um, they don't just graduate and get to go play Division One football or whatever. There's a standard to be met. And I think this is kind of our first year crop of guys that are graduating from college this year. And I just look at um, Amir Watts, who's just graduated from Pittsburgh. Uh, you've got Quavon Skaines, who just graduated from UConn. Uh, Amani Jones, who graduated from Iowa. Like, that's a huge deal. One, they went to play a, a high-level Division One football, but now they're graduating. Uh, you know, it's it's awesome to see. And now it's it's pushing them you know, whatever they need to make the next step in their career, whether it's grad school or whether it's it's getting a job or, you know, trying to figure out some way. Hey, if they're back in Chicago, I want them involved in our program because these guys have, have accomplished many great things in their life. On that note, who are like you guys are stone throws away from some big time college football programs like the Big Ten in particular. But who are some of the college recruiting teams that kind of come through your doors and, and are regularly checking out what Phillips athletes are doing? You know, depending on who we have in the building at the time. Um, we've got a tight end down in Alabama right now, Jaleel Billingsley. Um, so obviously when he was going through the recruiting ranks, whatever school you want to name, um, they probably were in our building. Um, so yeah, obviously when you get big time prospects, prospects like Jaleel was, um, you get all the, all the schools across the country, they find a way to come in. So follow up question. I'm going to put you on the spot here. Understanding that, you know, you probably deal with dozens and dozens of quality programs, if a parent that you know well and an athlete that you've had for a number of years, the parent comes to you and says, okay, my, my son has multiple offers, D1 schools. I want your recommendation on a program that, that's really impressed you with how they treat the kids, both as an athlete and as a scholar, where you know they're going to really steward the kids properly. What's one program that really sticks out and does a fantastic job doing that? You know, I, I think when you're a Division One athlete, and, and it's not to avoid the question, but there's so many checks and, and systems in place for you to succeed. Um, I look back at my college playing experience and it, it, and it was at Queens. Don't get me wrong. It was a high academic school and you were expected to, to handle your business. But in the U.S., it's so different with what they have for student athletes, um, the technology ability. Yeah, the infrastructure, tutoring. right? Yeah. It's really, really hard for a Division One athlete to screw up. Um, if, if they just show up, yeah. they'll be okay. Now, if they don't show up, that's a whole other story. But if they show up, the, the, the football staff, whether it's the coaches, whether it's the academic people, um, they will make sure that they, that they succeed. Good and advice. from what I've seen, that's pretty much across the board with all Division One schools. Right on. Good advice. Troy, I want to bring it back to Phillips, and I want to know what Phillips is doing differently than other city teams, and if you feel other teams are, you know, somewhat catching up. Yeah, I think our, our blueprint is is being, I don't know if copied the right word. Um, I, I think, Jeff, you know for sure with football, you beg, borrow, and steal. I mean, that's what you do. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I think our blueprint is being copied, and there are programs that are, are really, step, you know, stepping up and, and improving, getting better. I think one of the, the biggest blocks of, of city programs in particular that I've felt, the prep bowl in Chicago is the, it used to be the, the, 
biggest thing in the state of Illinois before the state championship series was put in. And what would happen was it would be the, the top Chicago public league versus the top Chicago private league team. And they would play off at the end of the season. And that would determine the, the so-called state champ. While when the state playoffs were actually put in place, the, they kept the prep bowl going. But what happens is if you lose in the first two rounds of the state playoffs, you get put back into the, the city championship and then the prep bowl series. So it's a, it's a consolation bracket, essentially. Our goal each and every year is to never take part in the city playoffs or the prep bowl series. Because not to, to go against the history of it, but it's, it's kind of like, well, I don't – to me, playing in a consolation tournament, there's not – this is high school football. This isn't seventh and eight – you know, seven and eight-year-olds where everybody should get their trophy and whatnot. We're trying – at the varsity level, we're trying to prepare our young men for life, and they have to learn how to compete at the highest level. So to me, our push is away from that, and a lot of schools push for that. Uh, and there's a couple of the, the up-and-coming programs that are doing a great job, but they're, they're not pushing the state – series the state tournament and that to me is what you need to push at you, for them to it for the kids to get to the next level they gotta want to compete against the best that's a great answer that's a great answer question i have for you Troy. i always kind of wonder on this one you were named the gatorade national coach of the year you know the highest honor gatorade gives but how do you keep evolving as a coach and who do you look for for advice yeah uh you know the, the gatorade was a a huge surprise, um, unknown and uh, a really cool experience. And, and Gatorade was first class and it was awesome. It was a really, really awesome deal. Mm-hmm. Um, as for evolving as a coach, I think the game of football is something that can really humble you quickly. Um, so, you know, we, we've kind of pushed ourselves and challenged uh, to, to, hey, we're going to go to another class and go higher up. So we were 4A, then we went to 5A, you know, did a year in six and a year. Now we're up in seven and, and that's part of how we, we keep evolving because we keep pushing ourselves and challenging. I think sometimes when you stay in the same class, you get the, you're playing the same teams and you're playing, you're like, Oh, we can do this. But when you're playing, it's a new challenge. Uh, and I think that's part of it is just creating new challenges within our program. Um, you know, we've, we failed in, at moments and, and that's okay. You know, you have to learn from those. Uh, we, we were blessed to get an opportunity to play on national TV on ESPN and we got waxed on national TV. Um, and that was embarrassing really was, but it was a challenge. And from there it was like, okay, what do we have to do? We played one of the top programs in Ohio. They were state champs, Pickerington central, they were state champs last year as well. Um, and we realized, Hey, we weren't ready then, but we're much better now than we were then. It's just new challenges. Keep pushing yourselves. So my question, my follow-up question on that one's a little bit more pedestrian. I want to hear about the ESPY awards, right? So receiving that award, you actually went to the actual uh, ESPN ESPY awards. I believe that year Jim Kelly received the Jimmy V, but can you speak a little bit about that experience? What kind of someone come in contact with any uh, known uh, high profile athletes? Yeah. So we, we got to go to uh, Gatorade has their big um, player of the year um, event. Um, the year we won, it was, it was, or that I was down there. It was JT Daniels. Uh, who ended up at USC, and now I think he's in the portal. Um, and then R.J. Barrett was yep. the um, basketball player of the year. So that was really cool. Um, his dad was there. And just getting to, you know, being – he was a former Canadian national men's basketball player. So it was really cool to, to have those interactions and see. Um, Carl Anthony Towns presented the award to me. Yeah, that fantastic. was awesome. Yeah. 
Yeah, so it was cool to get to meet him. Um, Peyton Manning was down there, uh, as well as me- uh, several members of the, the U.S. women's um, soccer team. So it, it was really unique just to to interact a little bit and see people. And as for the ESPYs, um, we got to take part. Um, we just we were spectators at the ESPYs, but we got to see the red carpet walk and uh, from our own little area. It was really really cool. Um, a unique experience um a once in a lifetime kind of thing and and something that i'll cherish obviously for the rest of my life fantastic well deserved and what wasn't your team also invited so yeah the year it was one of the years was held in chicago um we had that was the year we had won in 2015 we won the state championship so they invited us to to be a part of the draft experience so we were kind of in like the green room in the back and uh the young men that we brought with us were each able to hand the hat to like the, the guys in the first round. So Huge. as they were drafted, wow. they handed them a hat. It was wow. really cool. And then they brought us out on stage and recognized us. Um, it, it was really, really cool. And, and the whole audience stood up and kind of gave us a standing ovation. So the young men, I mean, that experience to be a high school kid, I can only imagine. Um, and yeah. it was the Laramie Tunsil draft. So that was kind of cool. Um, and just in terms of like just seeing that happen and being there and, and having him around and then like all the, the drama that associated yeah. with that um, and you know I say mm-hmm. cool that's the wrong choice of words um, kind of shocking but you know it's great to see what Tunzel's doing now in the NFL and how successful he's becoming but a tangible lesson though for your players on use of social media right like <laughs> oh 100% I mean it, it's it's such a different day and age now and I think we all can kind of look at it and say, man, I'm glad there wasn't a camera when I was younger. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, that's uh, definitely one of those moments in life where you can say to the guys, hey, this is why we always preach about social media. Uh, and there's a good chance in your life that somebody's recording everything you're doing. Good advice. Right. Yeah, let's stay in the present. What are you doing right now to stay in contact with your team and, you know, preparing for this upcoming season? So we have – <laughs> Through CPS, we use Google Google Classroom. So I've created a, a football Google Classroom. So we have a Google Meet every Monday uh, where we just kind of do a check-in. And then as June hits in our regular um, summer contact days would begin, um, they've suspended ours. for They haven't canceled them, but they've suspended them. Uh, and, and I don't think in, in the city of Chicago that we're going to get access to our June and July days. Uh, I think other parts of the state, potentially, I just don't see it in the city. Uh, so we meet every Monday. I, we'll build in our installs to all of those meetings. Uh, so we'll be ready mentally uh, from a X's and O's standpoint. Uh, and then physically, you know, we post all of our workouts in the Google Classroom. Um, they're all body workout space. So, so the kids don't need anything other than just space to do the workout. Um, and our, our strength conditioning coach is awesome. He builds in, like, if it's a sprint, he'll say, you know, you're sprinting, you know, two city blocks or, you know, or, or six house lots on the, the street. So they, yeah. they really can, can measure it out. Um, and it, it's great. It's, it's, we've really come together to, to make sure that our guys have everything that they need. And do your, do your guys so we haven't done that yet, but that's part of our summer plan. Um, where when we get into our install, okay. they'll break off with their position coaches. Uh, I think this transition, you know, at first there was the unknown. And then as you realize time, 
you know, there's going to be a lot of time of doing this. We've, we've put our plan in place to kind of just keep everything normal. Like we would do if we were at school um, as much as we can. So those big install things start in June for us. Yeah, we're doing pretty much the same. We're meeting with our team uh, via Zoom twice a week, and it, it's about all we can do right now. Uh, you know, we're hoping there's going to be a season. Here in, here in but Quebec, who knows at this the, point. Uh, the Minister of Education but, uh, and the Premier basically advised uh, that high school students should prepare or can prepare for a potential reality where they're starting the, the fall semester virtually from home. So, don't know what that means, what that's going to mean for team sports. No. Interesting. Well, let's move over to something our guest brought last week. Sean Jaffrey brought our top five sitcoms of all time. This week, we're going through our top five Madden players of all time. Troy, give me your top five Madden players of I all time. I think the, the listeners deserve uh, a, the rationale for the, <laughs> the Madden ratings. Uh, when, when Jeff and I were roommates, okay, um, we used to have some, some epic Madden battles and... Um, Literally, I remember we we would play for players. So we'd have our teams and we'd play. And like, hey, this guy's up in yeah. this, this game. And so you'd kind of build your team and all of a sudden you'd be playing. For, you'd lose one of your guys. It just – it was unique what we would do. And and in many times, like, we literally wouldn't speak to each other for days um, off of our Madden games. So it was kind of one of those easy things we, to come up with for our top five. Um yeah, it was it was very serious, and and just to go for the winner got to choose any player off the yeah. losing roster, losing team's roster, and move them over. So things again. <laughs> sounds you sounds like a very productive very period in there. Right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> very, especially when you play a cheater. But anyway, <laughs> all right. Go so ahead I, with I, your top I put five. them in order. Um, you know, obviously five through one. So at five, I put Champ Bailey. Um, I just remember playing against Jeff and he had Champ Bailey and it was like something always you, you something always happened with Champ Bailey. Like there was a pick or a breakup or just something that was like you can't go to against him. And and I know there's several cheat code type players, but Champ was definitely one of them. Um, number four, I went with Erlocker. I'm a I'm a Barrett guy. And I think when you look at for me, I was always about speed with Madden. And I think when you look at somebody like Erlacher as a uh, a linebacker, he may have been the fastest in the game. Number three, pretty straightforward, Randy Moss. Uh, you know, when in doubt, chuck the ball. Uh, and I think with Moss, when you're struggling, you could just kind of lob it up there and something would happen. Uh, number two, this one's near and dear to my heart because it, it won me a lot of games against Jeff. Um, but Javon Curse. Uh, the freak. Uh, an interesting, you know, story about Curse was uh, Jeff and I used to one summer work some football camps, and we we had the the pleasure of getting to meet Curse. And I think it, mm-hmm. I, I just remember shaking hands with him, and his whole hand literally was might have been twice the size of mine. Uh, it just completely engulfed me. Uh, and then using him in Madden video games, and he was the freak. And number one. Yeah, um, if you were to probably pick the number one Madden player of all time, you might choose Michael Vick, and that's you know who I chose just because there was no one that could change a game like Vick did. And Jeff, let's. I, I really right, I'm gonna. Sh- sorry, I'm gonna. I'm sh- really excited about this. 
Listen, I'm going to tell you, it's, it's amazing hearing your list, it, and it shows you and I played against each other. So I'm going to give you my list, five through one. <laughs> five, Champ Bailey. Shut down <laughs> corner, man. Shut down Absolute corner. game changer, right? We shut down corner, right? I value speed as well for number four. You went Erlacher, I go Ray Lewis. If, if I'm not right? mistaken, Lewis number was like three, the number one. Right? Rated player in the game that that we play, but in the, in the more recent versions of uh, right. Madden, right, you right. have the Fox. X factor, which improves team performance based on leadership, and that's why I always took Ray Lewis, man, just because the defense would play uh, consistently better with him on like on the field. Plus, he's the only defensive player that never drops a fumble recovery or interception ever. So, <laughs> yeah, never, right, right, hit stick everything. All right, so my number three, much like yours, Randy Moss, right, throw it up, double coverage, doesn't matter. My number two was actually your number one, Michael Vick, right? You could do anything with Michael Vick, fastest player in the game. And my number one, the guy I still have nightmares about, the guy you would always take off my team, Javon Kurse. So it's amazing how similar this is. Okay, so I got to you thoughts? know, put some qualifiers on my list first. So I haven't played – I didn't play a lot of Madden. There's probably like a 15-year stretch where I didn't play any Madden. So uh, there's two periods in my life of Madden, late 1990s, and then 2014 when my son got involved, right? So – um, there's, a, there's a big void there. So most of mine are going to be pretty recent, right? So when my son started playing. Um, so all mine criteria, they have to have a 99 rating. Uh, and basically also compatible with my low skills, right? In Madden, I'm not like, I'm a, I'm a guy at defense, I'm engaging. He plays out of four. Madden's not defense consistently. Uh, you know, quarterback options, like run into the strong side of the field wherever possible, right? So uh, Adrian Peterson. Uh, you can know multiple truck truck sticks on one play. He could kill the clock, keep my kid off the field because he was, he was better offensively. Uh, you could run power three times in a row. He'd give you three, four yards every time. That's number five. Uh, number four, as I said, Ray, uh, Ray Lewis from the Legends packs just recently. Again, that X factor is huge. Uh, never drops a turnover. Three, this one, basically not on his skill, but uh, Jim Brown, the Hall of Fame in 2019. Just because oh, like, in, NBA 2K does this very well, and then Madden started to do it as well. They did a very good well way of introducing historic players to a younger audience. Plus, he was only the first guy to have like a really good arm bar, right? So, for me, having Jim Brown in the game, I uh, showed my kid that Jim Brown wasn't just the guy from Dirty Dozen. He's actually like, a, you know, like one of the greatest players of all time. Uh, two, Barry Sanders, 2014. They had the 25th anniversary. Uh, my multiple guy on, like, my go-to guy on multiple occasions, right? You can do a start sweep right, you can cut back left, you can still get that first down. Uh, you can spin, the spin move was really good. And number one... <laughs> Is your number one Bart Starr? They actually have a very star? good autogram, right? You can look the Legends packs. And, uh, you can score multiple multiple ways. You, you shouldn't know that. Return points, you, know, you can play him in defense as well if you had to. Um, number one for me, Lamar Jackson, man. He's 96 speed. You don't have to be skilled offensively to use him. And you know what always for me was kind of telling where the QB situation in Baltimore was going to go? When he was drafted, he, they immediately gave him a 96 speed coming out of college. And Flacco's speed at the time was like 79. I'm like, okay, pretty telling, right, where, the, where the, the Flacco's career is going to be headed. But I think if you're looking at the best video game football player ever, and if we, we, we go beyond Madden, we have to all agree, I think Bo Jackson, Tecmo Bowl, greatest of all time. Yeah, I think that was the, the original – Original yeah, code unstoppable. So here's my Madden question for you guys. You guys are both coaches. You guys have both coached at a high level. Do you feel Madden has helped coaches with clock management? 
Because I'm just thinking, like, if Freddie Kitchens played no. Madden consistently every day in the off in one off season, he would have been a better <laughs> manager, right? Like, if Andy Reid earlier in his career, if Madden existed, maybe he would have won a couple more playoff games. It, it... Listen, it's a it's a lot different sitting on your couch yeah, than being I, in a stadium on Friday night. I think when the pressure your mind hits is in and, a different place. And in Madden, you press a button, yeah, and everybody does what you tell them to do. In the game, you're trying to communicate to the yeah. 11 players on the field. Um, it, it's so much different, and there's so much happening, and there's so much around you. Yeah. Um, it, it's clock management at all. I, I do think that it's it's up the level of IQ in football for one for the players. I think a lot mm-hmm. of them are understanding, um, in particular, uh, coverage and different things like that. Um, for receivers and quarterbacks, it's a, it's a, a neat way for them to kind of learn it on their own or take what you've taught. And they're like, oh, yeah, this is what, you know, we were talking about. Um, but, uh, but it's, you know, things that the, the finer. No, I agree with the, you. I agree with you. Cause the, the, the finer th- things involved in coaching, it, it doesn't help. Like I look at my 14 year old, like I compare his football IQ uh, and he plays like he plays tackle football, or whatever, but like, it's like, his football IQ compared to my football IQ when I was 14, I think just because of Madden, as you said, like he understands the basic concepts of the Halamami air raid using Cliff Kingsbury's offense, right? Like with, with Arizona, right? Like I don't think uh, we, there's no way a kid would have been exposed to that in the eighties and nineties. So I think it's, it's, up, yeah. it's a football IQ for sure. Like I remember when speed option was, was put into video games and it was like the coolest thing ever to see that. And yeah, yeah. And, speed up. and you yeah. know, it's, to go back to the Madden list, Todd, I, I can't believe you brought out the history makers. Like, <laughs> come on, man. <laughs> Vintage. It's, you know, we didn't put any stipulations on it. So, you know, that's it, a, a great choice on your part. Great. Troy, you brought out Mary Tyler Moore. There you go. I mean, so, you know, you, you can't there be you surprised. Uh, and, and just an interesting, when you're talking about um, the Engage 8 defense, um, there was a time we're, we're really aggressive on defense. Our, our D coordinator, Mike Larson, is is very creative uh, in, in terms of creating mismatches and, and the numbers advantage. And there's a time when people are like, oh, they just run the engage eight defense and bring everybody um, because of, of what we do. And it's like, keep thinking that because that's why we'll keep beating you. Cover, cover zero. You know, like in a moment of panic, cover yeah. zero is the immediate go-to that you've probably, probably gone to too often, right? But uh... When in doubt, bring heat. <laughs> I think with or lack of anything, corners, anything keep else bringing it. you have in um, it's like, okay, desperation, right? So, Hey, Troy, you talked about Michael Jordan. What are your you thoughts know, I, on I, the last I, game? I love it. I think it's great seeing, yeah. hopefully, what is Michael, who is Michael Jordan, um, the true self, and, and hearing him talk. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, in listening to you guys, previous podcasts, I, I agree with Jeff when talking about um, – not enough information about Isaiah Thomas yeah. uh, and, and, you know, the different things that happened with Jordan. Uh, but I think that the telltale thing to me was when they handed Jordan the, I think it was the iPad or whatever it was to show him what Isaiah Thomas said uh, about not shaking hands. And Jordan was like, this is all bullshit. Get this away. It doesn't matter. He might say it, but it, that's not true. Um, yeah. That just was the kind of person and, and, the, the time it was then, it, basketball was a much different sport, um, you know, and I, I think that guys were friendly, but it wasn't, it wasn't social media friendly like it is now. 
Um, like I look at like LeBron and Dwayne Wade and Carmelo and Chris Paul, the whole banana boat deal. Um, it, back then, guys did from uh, different teams did hang out and do things, but it wasn't the social media friendly. And I think there was a big separation uh, and the rules were different. You know, you can't create these super teams. Um, so guys were stuck in their place and they, right. they believed in their brand of the Chicago Bulls. And, and I just look at now even fans in general, like if LeBron switches teams, they switch allegiance to whatever team he's on. And me growing up, I just I couldn't imagine changing allegiances to, to different teams. That just wasn't based on a player. I think Wayne Gretzky is probably the closest, you know, and I did become a Kings fan a little bit. But deep down, I was always a Leafs fan. I loved Gretzky, but I was a Leafs fan. But we all, you know, we all say that Jordan is a pathological competitor. But you look at those clips of Isaiah Thomas, Gary Payton, Reggie Miller, like in the last dance. They all communicated that they honestly thought they had a better team than those, you know, those 90s runs of the Chicago Bulls. And it's, there's a real disdain. Like, I mean, there's a respect, but at the same time, like I said, we've heard the word hate a few times and there's an actual competitive disdain between the different stronger personalities in the league, which I think we don't see as much today. Yeah. You don't play at a level like that and not have a, uh, the ability to compete. Um, and I think when you, Gary Payton to me was the one when he was like, I had him. If you know, the, George the, would have done this the glove, in my head, I'm like, the, yeah, he's crazy. Yeah. He's delusional. <laughs> yeah. But well, he's he not. Was... That's genuinely what he felt as a competitor, that he could compete and beat him. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll never know. So it's easy for him to make that statement. But, you know, I think there's there is a little bit of a pathological competitor in a lot of professional athletes. They need to have that mental side in order to be great. To me, the best, the best scene is when he, he, they yeah, actually show Jordan the iPad and Gary Payton's making his comments about the glove and Jordan just laughs. He's like, the glove, all right, whatever. <laughs> He's like, we handled the glove. Don't worry about the glove, you know? <laughs> well, what are you hoping to see tonight? Last you know, episodes. I, I don't know if they can give it closure. Um, you know, I think there, there actually could be probably right. 20, 30 episodes and we'd all stay watched, you know, tuned into it. Um but hopefully there is some form of closure where I was like, oh, that's a really cool story that was told. Uh, so I think that to me is, is all I want. I would love to just have a finish, the story's told, and we walk away like, man, that was a great, you know, 10 hours of my life that I've put in to watch this show. For me, for me, two things, right? Like is there- getting some understanding of why if Krause was not going to move on with Phil Jackson that Michael Jordan and Phil Jackson didn't end up on another team. Like, were, did they exhaust all their other opportunities or they were both, was Jordan clearly not interested in playing? Like what, you know what? Cause I think if this was to happen today, they'd end up on a different, clearly end up on a different organization. Right. So that's one. Uh, to me, <laughs> the second one, you ever notice like Jordan's bodyguard, the guy that looks like Weird Al Yankovic, like is like half his size or whatever. Like we need to know, don't you think we, we need almost an episode, the backstory on this guy? Like you're, you know, you're six foot six, like must be a professional athlete. You punched out Steve Kerr, like, but whatever reason you got the skinny guy, like, uh, who's like 130 pounds with an Afro, like he's your personal bodyguard. Like what is, what is this guy's superpower, right? Like, <laughs> might be a gun. Um, <laughs> hey, is, is there no, none whatsoever in my ass. No, I agree. absolutely. Just based on competitive. Todd, you agree? Um, I think you know. My son may actually made an interesting comment. He's like, you know what? Jordan is clearly the best. He goes, 
probably not as well-rounded human being as LeBron. Like, you know, as low as LeBron, we often see his kids. We, you know, he, he's, you know, active with his high, you know, in his kids' high school and stuff like that. But it's like Jordan, it's a Father's Day game, you know, game, whatever, game seven, 1996 series. We don't see his kids at all, right? He was wholly focused on winning basketball games. And for that reason, he probably, he's the greatest ever, right? Like, Yeah, I, I think, you know, athletically, yeah. um, LeBron may be better. Um, than Mike, um, but I think just in terms of the the whole package, um, or Jordan's competitive edge really sets him apart from anybody. And, and just it's so hard to to compare eras. And also, I just look at like the social media component plays a huge part in LeBron. Like his Taco Tuesday thing is super cool with his family and shows what kind of person he really is. Um, but Jordan never got that opportunity when he played and then by the point when he could have done those things he was so big um, and he had to protect his professional image uh, that he he doesn't do those things um, because he's in charge of a, a you know a, a corporation and a <laughs> billion dollars and and he's really protecting his image because of that and and I know he's never really taken much of a political standpoint but I also you know, kind of feel like I always think back to Charles Barkley saying I'm not a role model. But again, I think all that other stuff in, in Jordan's yeah. eyes would be distraction. It's not going to help him win ball games, right? For like, sure. I mean, he, he definitely had a unique ability to to compartmentalize. And when game time hit, that's all he was focused on. Well, I tell you, this was an absolute great conversation, guys. We just spent an hour talking. Troy, I want to thank you so much for coming on. Um, we are going to go back to our, our friend from Newfoundland, Jeff Drover, who is the, the, the first Newfoundlander ever to play professional football. He was supposed to be scheduled this week, but uh, he's got two small kids himself and his wife's on the road for work. So uh, we switched up the, the schedule a little bit. But Jeff Drover will be back to talk about uh, his adventures from Newfoundland to professional football. That's great. Thanks again, Troy. Thank you, Todd. And uh, à la prochaine.